Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hi, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep. I've got a nice um, mystery bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to the reading, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com sleepy and start living a better life today. 
It's always been easy for me to dwell on problems instead of solutions, especially when I hit the pillow at night and start commiserating and catastrophizing without really thinking of solutions to those problems. It was easy for me to do that for a long time, and I know now it's because I just didn't have the tools to deal with it. But after years of therapy, I feel that I know how to change my mindset and solve problems rather than letting them torment me. And the relief of that has totally changed my life. And that was only made possible through going to therapy. Well, BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions. It's convenient, it's affordable, and it works. So when you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com sleepy today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sleepy. Be nice to your brain. It deserves it, and so do you. I will put a link for this in the description of the show. And now... I get to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Usually I read the names of new patrons um, that have donated to the Sleepy Podcast. Uh, But as I am going to be away this next month on vacation and not recording, um, I'm just going to thank all of our patrons uh, who exist right now. They're so amazing and I truly thank you for being a part of making this show. If any of you listening would like to be a patron of the Sleepy Podcast, um, if it's maybe become part of your nightly routine or helped you wake up more refreshed the next day, then consider going to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. There's cool perks for donating $5 a month, um, like access to an exclusive poetry feed with over 50 other episodes that you have not heard before. Um, with more poetry readings every month. But even if you donate a dollar a month, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. And no matter how much, it really goes a long way. So again, thank you to all of our existing patrons. And if you're not a patron and want to be, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kana. By the time you hear this bedtime story, I will be off and away to Europe. I'm going to Italy for the first time, and I cannot tell you how excited I am for that. Um, It's been a long, long time coming. Place I've wanted to visit forever. And um, yeah, it's going to be the first time I take a vacation without my recording equipment in the last four or five years, which is kind of messed up. Um, I've always worked on vacations and I'm not doing it this time. And um, anyone who's listening who's a workaholic, um, I empathize with you and I hope hearing that a fellow workaholic is not going to let it get him this time. I hope that encourages you to do the same because working on vacations is kind of crazy. We should, we should all strive to not do that if we can. All that to say... This uh, recording and the next few episodes are going to be recorded before I leave. And um, yeah, so um, this story is a really, really fantastic one by none other than Agatha Christie with our favorite French detective, Monsieur Perrault. Um these stories are kind of a perfect length and um, they kind of engage your brain a little bit 
while still being slightly droll enough to doze off to. Yeah, it's Agatha Christie, so how could he not enjoy it? So tonight, The Plymouth Express Affair by Agatha Christie. Hope it helps you doze off into a deep, deep slumber. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Express Affair Alex Simpson, RM, stepped from the platform at Newton Abbott into a first-class apartment of the Plymouth Express. A porter followed him with a heavy suitcase. He was about to swing it up to the rack, but the young sailor stopped him. No, leave it on the seat. I'll put it up later. Here you are. Thank you, sir, the porter generously tipped withdrew. Doors banged. A stentorian voice shouted, Plymouth only, change for Torquay, Plymouth next stop. Then a whistle blew, and the train drew slowly out of the station. Lieutenant Simpson had the carriage to himself. The December air was chilly, and he pulled up the window. Then he sniffed vaguely and frowned. What a smell there was. Reminded him of that time in the hospital and the operation on his leg. Yes, chloroform. That was it. He let the window down again, changing his seat to one with its back to the engine. He pulled a pipe out of his pocket and lit it. For a little time, he sat inactive, looking out into the night and smoking. At last, he roused himself and, opening the suitcase, took out some papers and magazines, then closed the suitcase again and endeavored to shove it under the opposite seat without success. Some hidden obstacle resisted it. He shoved harder with rising impatience, but it still stuck out halfway into the carriage. Why the devil won't it go in, he muttered, and hauling it out completely, he stooped down and peered under the seat. A moment later, a cry rang out into the night, and the great train came to an unwilling halt in obedience to the imperative jerking of the communication cord. Mon ami, said Poirot, you have, I know, been deeply interested in this mystery of the Plymouth Express. Read this. I picked up the note he flicked across the table at me. It was brief and to the point. Dear sir, I shall be obliged if you will call upon me at your earliest convenience. Yours faithfully, Ebenezer Halliday. The connection was not clear to my mind, and I looked inquiringly at Perot. For answer, he took up the newspaper and read aloud. A sensational discovery was made last night. A young naval officer returning to Plymouth found under the sea of his compartment the body of a woman stabbed through the heart. The officer at once pulled the communication cord and the train was brought to a standstill. The woman, who was about 30 years of age and richly dressed, has not been yet identified. And later we have this. 
The woman found dead in the Plymouth Express has been identified as the Honorable Mrs. Rupert Carrington. You see now, my friend, or if you do not, I will add this. Mrs. Rupert Carrington was, before her marriage, Flossie Halliday, daughter of Old Man Halliday, the Steel King of America. And he has sent for you. Splendid. I did him a little service in the past, an affair of bearer bonds, and once when I was in Paris for a royal visit, I had Mademoiselle Flossie pointed out to me. La jolie petite pensionnaire. She had the jolie dot too. It caused trouble. She nearly made a bad affair. How was that? A certain Count de la Roquefort. Un bien mauvais sujet. A bad hat, as you would say. An adventurer, pure and simple, who knew how to appeal to a romantic young girl. Luckily, her father got wind of it in time. He took her back to America in haste. I heard of her marriage some years later, but I know nothing of her husband. Hmm, I said. The Honorable Rupert Carrington is no beauty, by all accounts. He'd pretty well run through his own money on the turf, and I should imagine old man Halliday's dollars came along in the nick of time. I should say that for a good-looking, well-mannered, utterly unscrupulous young scoundrel, it would be hard to find his match. Ah, the poor little lady. Elle n'est pas bien tombée. I fancy he made it pretty obvious at once that it was her money, and not she that had attracted him. I believe they drifted apart almost at once. I've heard rumors lately that there was to be a definite legal separation. Old man Halliday is no fool. He would tie up her money pretty tight. I dare say. Anyway, I know as a fact that the Honorable Rupert is said to be extremely hard up. Aha. I wonder. You wonder what? My good friend, do not jump down my throat like that. You are interested, I see. Supposing you accompany me to see Mr. Halliday. There is a taxi stand at the corner. A very few minutes sufficed to whirl us to the superb house in Park Lane, rented by the American magnate. We were shown into the library, and almost immediately we were joined by a large, stout man with piercing eyes and an aggressive chin. Monsieur Poirot, said Mr. Halliday. I guess I don't need to tell you what I want you for. You've read the papers, and I'm never one to let the grass grow under my feet. I happened to hear you were in London. I remember the good work you did over those bonds. Never forget a name. I've got the pick of Scotland Yard, but I'll have my own man as well. Money no object. All the dollars were made for my little girl, and now she's gone. I'll spend my last cent to catch the damn scoundrel that did it. See? So it's up to you to deliver the goods. Poirot bowed. I accept, Monsieur. All the more willingly that I saw your daughter in Paris several times. And now I will ask you to tell me the circumstances of her journey to Plymouth and any other details that seem to you to bear upon the case. Well, to begin with, responded Halliday, she wasn't going to Plymouth. She was going to join a house party at Avonmead Court, the Duchess of Swansea's place. She left London by the 1214 from Paddington, arriving at Bristol, where she had no change at 2.50. The principal Plymouth Expresses, of course, run via Westbury, 
and do not go near Bristol at all. The 12.14 does a non-stop run to Bristol, afterwards stopping at Weston, Taunton, Exeter, and Newton Abbott. My daughter traveled alone in her carriage, which was reserved as far as Bristol, her maid being in a third-class carriage in the next coach. Perot nodded, and Mr. Halliday went on. The party at Avonmead Court was to be a very gay one, with several balls, and in consequence, my daughter had with her nearly all her jewels, amounting in value, perhaps, to about $100,000. One moment, interrupted Perot, who had charge of the jewels, your daughter or the maid? My daughter always took charge of them herself, carrying them in a small blue Morocco case. Continue, monsieur. At Bristol, the maid, Jane Mason, collected her mistress's dressing bag and wraps, which were with her, and came to the door of Flossie's apartment. To her intense surprise, my daughter told her that she was not getting out at Bristol, I was going on farther. She directed Mason to get out the luggage and put it in the cloakroom. She could have tea in the refreshment room, but she was to wait at the station for her mistress, who had returned to Bristol by an up train in the course of the afternoon. The maid, although very much astonished, did as she was told. She put the luggage in the cloakroom and had some tea. But up train after up train came in and her mistress did not appear. After the arrival of the last train, she left the luggage where it was and went to a hotel near the station for the night. This morning, she read of the tragedy and returned to town by the first available train. Is there nothing to account for your daughter's sudden change of plan? Well, there's this. According to Jane Mason, at Bristol, Flossie was no longer alone in her carriage. There was a man in it who stood looking out of the farther window so that she could not see his face. The train was a corridor one, of course. Yes. Which side was the corridor? On the platform side, my daughter was standing in the corridor as she talked to Mason. And there is no doubt in your mind. Excuse me. He got up and carefully straightened the inkstand, which was a little askew. Je vous demande pardon, he continued, reseating himself. It affects my nerves to see anything crooked. Strange, is it not? I was saying, monsieur, that there is no doubt in your mind as to this probably unexpected meeting being the cause of your daughter's sudden change of plan. It seems the only reasonable supposition. You have no idea as to who the gentleman in question might be. The millionaire hesitated for a moment and then replied, no, I do not know at all. Now, as to the discovery of the body. It was discovered by a young naval officer who at once gave the alarm. There was a doctor on the train. He examined the body. He had been first chloroformed and then stabbed. He gave it as his opinion that she had been dead about four hours. So so it must have been done not long after leaving Bristol. Probably between there and Weston. Possibly between Weston and Taunton. And the jewel case. The jewel case, Monsieur Perel, was missing. One more thing, Monsieur. Your daughter's fortune. To whom does it pass at her death? 
Flossie made a will soon after her marriage, leaving everything to her husband. He hesitated for a minute, and then went on. I may as well tell you, Monsieur Perrault, that I regard my son-in-law as an unprincipled scoundrel, and that, by my advice, my daughter was on the eve of freeing herself from him by legal means. No difficult matter. I settled her money upon her in such a way that he cannot touch it during her lifetime. But although they've lived entirely apart for some years, she has frequently acceded to his demands for money rather than face an open scandal. However, I was determined to put an end to this, and at last, Flossie agreed, and my lawyers were instructed to take proceedings. And where is Monsieur Carrington? In town. I believe he was away in the country yesterday, but he returned last night. Poirot considered a little while. Then he said, I think that is all, Monsieur. You would like to see the maid, Jane Mason? If you please. Halliday rang the bell and gave a short order to the footman. A few minutes later, Jane Mason entered the room, a respectable, hard-featured woman, as emotionless in the face of tragedy as only a good servant can be. You'll permit me to put a few questions. Your mistress, she was quite as usual before starting yesterday morning. Not excited or flurried? Oh, no, sir. But at Bristol, she was quite different. Yes, sir. Regular upset. So nervous, she didn't seem to know what she was saying. What did she say exactly? Well, sir, as near as I can remember, she said, Mason, I've got to alter my plans. Something has happened. I mean, I'm not getting out here after all. I must go on. Get out the luggage and put it in the cloakroom. Then have some tea and wait for me in the station. Wait for you here, ma'am, I asked. Yes, yes, don't leave the station. I shall return by a later train. I don't know when. It may be until quite late. Very well, ma'am, I says. It wasn't my place to ask questions, but I thought it very strange. It was unlike your mistress, eh? Very unlike her, sir. What do you think? Well, sir, I thought it was to do with the gentleman in the carriage. She didn't speak to him, but she turned round once or twice, as though to ask him if she was doing right. But you didn't see the gentleman's face. No, sir. He stood with his back to me all the time. Can you describe him at all? He had on a light fawn overcoat and a traveling cap. He was tall and slender-like, and the back of his head was dark. You didn't know him? No, I don't think so, sir. It was not your master, Mr. Carrington, by any chance. Mason looked rather startled. Oh, I don't think so, sir. But you are not sure. It was about the master's build, sir, but I never thought of it being him. We so seldom saw him. I couldn't say it wasn't him. Perot picked up a pin from the carpet and frowned at it severely. Then he continued, Would it be possible for the man to have entered the train at Bristol before you reach the carriage? Mason considered. Yes, sir, I think it would. My compartment was very crowded, 
and it was some minutes before I could get out. And then there was a very large crowd on the platform, and that delayed me too. But you'd only have had a minute or two to speak to the mistress that way. I took it for granted that he'd come along the corridor. That is more probable, certainly. He paused, still frowning. You know how the mistress was dressed, sir. The papers give a few details, but I would like you to confirm them. She was wearing a white fox fur toque, sir, with a white spotted veil and a blue frieze coat and skirt, the shade of blue they call Electra. Hmm, rather striking. Yes, remarked Halliday. Inspector Jeff is in hopes that they may help us to fix the spot where the crime took place. Anyone who saw her would remember her. Precisement. Thank you, mademoiselle. The maid left the room. Well, Perot got up briskly. That is all I can do here. Except, monsieur, that I would ask you to tell me everything. But everything. I have done so. Are you sure? Absolutely. Then there is nothing more to be said. I must decline the case. Why? Because you have not been frank with me. I assure you, no, you are keeping something back. There was a moment's pause and then Halliday drew a paper from his pocket and handed it to my friend. I guess that's what you're after, Monsieur Perrault, though how you know about it fairly gets my go. Perrault smiled and unfolded the paper. It was a letter written in thin, sloping handwriting. Perrault read it out loud. Chérie, madame, it is with infinite pleasure that I look forward to the felicity of meeting you again. After your so amiable reply to my letter, I can hardly restrain my impatience. I've never forgotten those days in Paris, but it's most cruel that you should be leaving London tomorrow. However, before very long, and perhaps sooner than you think, I shall have the joy of beholding once more the ladies whose image has ever reigned supreme in my heart. Believe, chère madame, all the assurance of my most devoted and unaltered sentiments. Armand de la Roquefort. Perot handed the letter back to Halliday with a bow. I fancy, monsieur, that you do not know that your daughter intended renewing her acquaintance with the Count de la Roquefort. It came as a thunderbolt to me. I found this letter in my daughter's handbag. As you probably know, Monsieur Perrault, the so-called Count is an adventurer of the worst type. Perrault nodded. But what I want to know is how you knew of the existence of this letter. My friend smiled. Monsieur, I did not but to track footmarks and recognize cigarette ash is not sufficient for a detective. He must also be a good psychologist. I knew that you disliked and mistrusted your son-in-law. He benefits by your daughter's death. The maid's description of the mysterious man bears a sufficient resemblance to him, yet you were not keen on his track. Why? Surely because your suspicions lie in another direction. Therefore, you are keeping something back. You're right, Monsieur Perrault. I was sure of Rupert's guilt until I found this letter. It unsettled me horribly. 
Yes, the Count says. Before very long, and perhaps sooner than you think. Obviously, he would not want to wait until you get wind of his appearance. Was it he who traveled down from London by the 1214 and came along the corridor to your daughter's compartment? The Count de la Roquefort is also, if I remember rightly, tall and dark. The millionaire nodded. Well, monsieur, I will wish you a good day. Scotland Yard has, I presume, a list of the jewels. Yes, I believe Inspector Jab is here now, if you would like to see him. Jap was an old friend of ours and greeted Poirot with a sort of affectionate contempt. And how are you, monsieur? No bad feeling between us, though we have got our different ways of looking at things. How are the little gray cells, eh? Going strong? Poirot beamed upon him. They function, my good job. Assuredly they do. Then that's all right. Think it was the Honorable Rupert or a crook. We're keeping an eye on all the regular places, of course. We shall know if the shiners are disposed of. And of course, whoever did it isn't going to keep them to admire their sparkle. Not likely. I'm trying to find out where Rupert Carrington was yesterday. Seems a bit of a mystery about it. I've got a man watching him. A great precaution, but perhaps a day late, suggested Perot gently. You always will have your joke, Monsieur Perot. Well, I'm off to Paddington. Bristol, Weston, Taunton. That's my beat. So long. You will come around and see me this evening and tell me the result. Sure thing, if I'm back. That good inspector believes in matter, in motion, murmured Perot as our friend departed. He travels, he measures footprints, he collects mud and cigarette ash. He is extremely busy. He is zealous beyond words. And if I mention psychology to him, do you know what he would do, my friend? He would smile. He would say to himself, Poor old Perot. He ages. He grows senile. Job is the younger generation knocking on the door. And Mofoy. They are so busy knocking that they do not notice that the door is open. And what are you going to do? As we have a carte blanche, I shall expend three pence in wringing out the rents, where you have noticed our account is staying. After that, as my feet are a little damp and I have sneezed twice, I shall return to my rooms and make myself a tisano over the spirit lamp. I did not see Poirot until the following morning. I found him placidly finishing his breakfast. Well, I inquired eagerly, what has happened? Nothing. But John? I have not seen him. The Count? He left the Ritz the day before yesterday. The day of the murder? Yes. Then that settles it. Rupert Carrington is cleared. Because the Count de la Roquefort has left the Ritz. You go too fast, my friend. Anyway, he must be followed, arrested. But what could be his motive? One hundred thousand dollars worth of jewelry is a very good motive for anyone. No, the question to my mind is, why kill her? Why not simply steal the jewels? She would not prosecute. Why not? Because she is a woman, mon ami. 
she once loved this man. Therefore, she would suffer her loss in silence. And the Count, who is an extremely good psychologist where women are concerned, hence his successes, would know that perfectly well. On the other hand, if Rupert Carrington killed her, why take the jewels, which would incriminate him fatally? As a blind? Perhaps you are right, my friend. Ah, here is Ja. I recognize his knock. The inspector was beaming good-humoredly. Morning, Perot. Only just got back. I've done some good work. And you? Me? I've arranged my ideas, replied Perot placidly. Job laughed heartily. Old chap's getting on in years, he observed beneath his breath to me. That won't do for us young folk, he said aloud. Quelle de Marche, Poirot inquired. Well, do you want to hear what I've done? You permit me to take a guess. You found the knife with which the crime was committed by the side of the line between Weston and Taunton, and you have interviewed the paper boy who spoke to Mrs. Carrington at Weston. Jap's jaw fell. How on earth did you know? Don't tell me it was those almighty little gray cells of yours. I am glad you admit for once that they are almighty. Tell me, did she give the paper boy a shilling for himself? No, it was half a crown. Jop recovered his temper and grinned. Pretty extravagant, these rich Americans. And in consequence, the boy did not forget her. Not he. Half crowns don't come his way every day. She hailed him and bought two magazines. One had a picture of a girl in blue on the cover. That'll match me, she said. Oh, he remembered her perfectly. Well, that was enough for me. By doctor's evidence, the crime must have been committed before time. I guess they'd throw the knife away at once. They walked down the line looking for it. And sure enough, there it was. I made inquiries at Taunton about our man, but of course it's a big station. It wasn't likely they'd notice him. He probably got back to London by a later train. Burrow nodded. Very likely. But I found another bit of news when I got back. They're passing the jewels all right. That large emerald was pawned last night by one of the regular lot. Who do you think it was? I don't know, except that he was a short man. Job started. Well, you're right there. He's short enough. It was Red Narky. Who on earth is Red Narky? I asked. A particularly sharp jewel thief, sir, and not one to stick at murder. Usually works with a woman, Gracie Ken, but she doesn't seem to be in it this time, unless she's got off to Holland with the rest of the swag. You've arrested Narky. Sure thing. But mind you, it's the other man we want. The man who went down in this Carrington in the train. He was the one who planned the job, right enough. But Narky won't squeal on a pal. I noticed that Poirot's eyes had become very green. I think, he said gently, that I can find Narky's pal for you all right. One of your little ideas, eh? Jap eyed Poirot sharply. Wonderful how you manage to deliver the goods sometimes at your age and all. Devil's own luck, of course. Perhaps, perhaps, murmured my friend. Hastings, 
I have in the brush. So, my galoshes, if it still rains, we must now do the good work of that Tisano. Au revoir, chop. Good luck to you, Perot. Perot hailed the first taxi we met and directed the driver to Park Lane. When we drew up before Halliday's house, he skipped out nimbly, paid the driver and rang the bell. To the footman who opened the door, he made a request in a low voice, and we were immediately taken upstairs. We went up to the top of the house and were shown into a small, neat bedroom. Perot's eyes roved around the room and fastened themselves on a small black trunk. He knelt in front of it, scrutinized the labels on it, and took a small twist of wire from his pocket. Ask Mr. Halliday if he will be so kind as to mount to me here, he said over his shoulder to the footman. The man departed, and Poirot gently coaxed the lock of the trunk with a practiced hand. In a few minutes, the lock gave, and he raised the lid of the trunk. Swiftly, he began rummaging among the clothes it contained, flinging them out on the floor. There was a heavy step on the stairs, and Halliday entered the room. What in hell are you doing here? he demanded, staring. I was looking, monsieur, for this. Perot withdrew from the trunk a coat and skirt of bright blue frieze and a small toque of white fox fur. What are you doing with my trunk? I turned to see that the maid, Jane Mason, had entered the room. If you will just shut the door, Hastings, thank you. Yes, and stand with your back against it. Now, Mr. Halliday, let me introduce you to Grace Kim, otherwise Jane Mason, who will shortly rejoin her accomplice, Red Narky, under the kind escort of Jap. It was one of the most simple. Perot waved a deprecating hand, then helped himself to more caviar. It is not every day that one lunches with a millionaire. It was the maid's insistence on the clothes that her mistress was wearing that first struck me. Why was she so anxious that our attention should be directed to them? I reflected that we had only the maid's word for the mysterious man in the carriage at Bristol. As far as the doctor's evidence went, Mrs. Carrington might easily have been murdered before reaching Bristol. But if so, then the maid must be an accomplice. And if she were an accomplice, she would not wish this point to rest on her evidence alone. The clothes Mrs. Carrington was wearing were of a striking nature. A maid usually has a good deal of choice as to what her mistress shall wear. Now, if after Bristol, anyone saw a lady in bright blue coat and skirt and a fur toque, he will be quite ready to swear he has seen Mrs. Carrington. I began to reconstruct. The maid would provide herself with duplicate clothes. She and her accomplice chloroform and stab Mrs. Carrington between London and Bristol, probably taking advantage of a tunnel. Her body is rolled under the sea. The maid takes her place. A Weston, she must make herself noticed. How? In all probability, a newspaper boy will be selected. She will ensure his remembering her by giving him a large tip. She also drew his attention to the color of her dress by a remark about one of the magazines. After leaving Weston, she throws the knife out the window to mark the place where the crime presumably occurred and changes her clothes or buttons a long Macintosh over them. 
Taunton, she leaves the train and returns to Bristol as soon as possible, where her accomplice has duly left luggage in the cloakroom. He hands over the ticket and himself returns to London. She waits on the platform, carrying out her role, goes to a hotel for the night, and returns to town in the morning, exactly as she said. When Job returned from his expedition, he confirmed all my deductions. He also told me that a well-known crook was passing the jewels. I knew that whoever it was would be the exact opposite of the man Jane Mason described. When I heard it was Red Narky, who always worked with Gracie Kidd, well, I knew just where to find her. And the Count? The more I thought of him, the more I was convinced that he had nothing to do with it. A gentleman is much too careful of his own skin to risk murder. It would be out of keeping with his character. Well, Monsieur Perrault, said Halliday, I owe you a big debt, and the check I write after lunch won't go near to settling it. Perrault smiled modestly and murmured to me, the good job. He shall get the official credit, all right. But though he is a guy his grace he can, I think that I, as the Americans say, have got his go. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.